Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who is one of the true visionaries and strategists in the fields of sports and entertainment. As the president of Madison Square Garden from 1991 to 1994, he was ultimately responsible for the operations of both the New York Knicks and the New York Rangers, who won their first Stanley Cup in 54 years in 1994. He was also responsible for the direction of the MSG Network, the nation's largest regional sports network, MSG Entertainment, and the MSG Facilities Group, which operated the Garden Arena and the Paramount. While president of MSG's network in 1988, he negotiated the landmark 12-year, $486 million deal to telecast New York Yankees baseball, and the network grew to become one of the largest and most profitable regional sports networks in the country. It is a pleasure to welcome the man who gave the Ranger fans the moment that would last a lifetime, Bob Bukowski to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Bob. Welcome. It's nice to see you guys. You read my bio very well, I must tell you. <laughs> hey, listen, and you also gave me one of the greatest moments of my life for sure. Yeah. But before we get to that, yeah. you had so many unique experiences. So let's go way back to your time at NBC. You yeah. spent time there as an account executive for the Today and Tonight shows. You right. moved back to advertising um, positions in sports in 1975. NBC had not had the Olympics rights for a long time. They finally secure the rights for the 1980s Summer Games in Moscow. And in preparation, you fly to Moscow to scout hotels for clients. But upon your arrival, something happened. So could you tell our audience a little (laughs) bit about that? Yeah, I went with uh, the woman who headed up my client relations. Her name was Susan Bresnan. I got her from ABC Sports. She wound up, of all things, being Chuck Dolan's niece. Um, which I didn't know at the time. So, you know, know, history uh, kind of uh, dovetailed down the road. But um, we left New York and it was sort of harried because they're having trouble with our visa with the state, you know, the state government. And uh, we got it late. We got on a plane to Paris, went to Paris, spent the night and the next night we flew to Moscow. And uh, as I was looking through uh, my passport, I noticed that the dates didn't jive with the dates that we were supposed to be in Moscow. They were off about three or four, but, you know, it wasn't correct. So we got off the plane on a Sunday night, snowy, cold, you know, you know, you just had to walk down the stairs and they put you into this waiting area where everybody was milling around. And I said, Susan, let me see your passport. And her dates were the same as mine. And I said, geez, I don't have, I hope we don't have a problem. And uh, I befriended a guy next to me who worked for GE, which owned uh, NBC at that point, and he'd been there many times. I said, let me ask you something. You think I'm going to have a problem here? I mean, my dates don't jive with the dates I'm going. He smacked his head. And he said, Jesus, are you going to have a problem? They're going to put you in jail. I said, what, are you kidding me? So all of a sudden, the gates start to open up, and we go in one by one to take our luggage. And Susan's one before me, not immediate in front of me. And she gets passed through. I said, it won't be a problem. So I put mine through. And the guy's going through everything. He sees my visa date. And all of a sudden, bells go off, commotion. They start saying, you know, grab them, grab them. And I said, what's the, what's the problem? I said, what about her? She has the same visa dates as mine. So they grabbed her. She never forgot that. And before we knew it, we had armed guards with bayonets in our face. 
sitting in the front of the um, airport and they made me get my luggage and uh, they took us to this holding cell uh, about a mile, um, which we had to walk. And, uh, you know, we slept in this, we each had our own cell, it was four of us. It was me, Susan, a black from Zaire and a member of the PLO. So all four of us were not allowed in Russia that day. And uh, I happened to be friend on the line. I saw an NBC News uh, canister and he wound up being Fred Francis, who was a great NBC correspondent. He, he and I became lifelong friends and he got us out the next day because I basically said the next day when they took us back, <laughs> they took us from jail. And I remember we were waiting in the area, Mark, and, uh, and Susan wasn't there. And they were getting very upset and pointing, you know, I go get her, you know, so I go get her. And she's taking a shower, washing her hair. I said, what the hell, you think we're in Holiday Inn here? Get out of here. Let's go. She said, well, I'm washing my hair. I don't care what they're going to do to me. So we wound up getting to the airport. Long story short, we got out, and Fred Francis was with us for four days, and they followed us. KGB followed us wherever we went. And um, they took us on one tour for Lennon Stadium. You know, and back then and even now, everything is the biggest in the world. This is the biggest mailbox. This is the biggest telephone booth. And when we went to Lennon Stadium, the guy who was our tour guide was an ex-wrestler. And he said, this is the biggest stadium in the world. And I said, no, come on. We have four or five of those in the United States. And a lot of them have roofs on top of them. He got so pissed off, he left. And all 18 people sat there for three hours before they got another uh, tour guide. So it was quite a few days. You're lucky you didn't end up in jail again for that statement. <laughs> my, my wife, by the way, when I was in jail, was at a Fleetwood Mac concert in the middle of so. <laughs> <laughs> so while you're at NBC, you, you yeah. meet Chet Simmons, who may be, in yeah. fact, the greatest sports television executive in history. What did you learn from Chet and what did he mean to your career? Uh, Chet meant everything to me. Um, you know, Chet and um, Rune Arledge were really the two great early sports television executives. They worked at a company called Sports Programs, Inc. that was bought by um, ABC and became ABC Sports. And Chet was the classiest, brightest, um, most intelligent programmer, sports programmer I had ever been around. And he was a great teacher and a great sense of himself. And uh, he was a visionary in so many different ways. And you know, just being around him, and I was lucky that he, you know, he took me under his wing early on, and we got to lunch, and he would regale me all these things, and uh, I learned a great deal from him. And um, originally, when he went to start ESPN '79, he wanted me to come immediately to head up advertising, but I didn't want to do that. Um, there were no ratings at that particular point. I didn't want to give up on NBC just yet. Um, Don Omar had taken over, you know, the ABC Sports executive um, took over NBC Sports. I still wanted to see about potentially the Olympics, and uh, I stayed. And uh, fast forward about a year and a half later, two years, Chet offered me the head of programming, which I really wanted, and uh, to move away from sales. And he said, you can stay in New York. We'll set up an office in New York. Steve Bornstein, who became a legendary programmer, was my director. I was the VP. He'd be in Bristol. And uh, I went and I left. And uh, Don Olmeyer was very upset, said he was going to single-handedly kill ESPN. And a couple of years later, when Nabisco, he wound up buying 40% of it. You know? So it was the wild, wild. Bob Iger, you know, the great Bob Iger, um, is, is a friend of mine. When I was at ESPN, I negotiated the first programming deal with Bob, who was the manager of ABC Sports. 
and we always had a great fondness for each other. And I had not emailed him for a while. And uh, with all the success at Disney, and I sent him a note that to congratulate him on his book about a year and a year and a half ago. And guys, within 30 minutes, he te texted me back and said, it's so great for, to hear from you. He said, we are some of the last guys in the halcyon days of sports. And the late 70s, early 80s, the ESPN time uh, was a unique period. Um, and now the world is changing again from broadcast to cable and now streaming. So, you know, we've seen all the changes. And uh, I was fortunate to uh, be under Chet's wing. Um, and I learned a great deal from him. And uh, I wound up bringing him back into my orbit when I went to Madison Square Garden Network to try and build that. And he came in and was a consultant for me. He lived down in Tybee Island. But so, you know, until the day he died, we were we were extremely close. And he was he was a father figure for me. So it's amazing. You mentioned the early days of ESPN and you take a look at your work at sports sales at NBC. You, the opening at Madison Square Garden Network comes about. And for our younger audience that don't know what those early days were like, tell us what it looked like 37 years ago when, when you took over that position. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I got there because I left NBC. I went to Paramount Pictures in their syndication arm. And Paramount at that point owned Madison Square Garden. And interestingly, ABC Sports wanted me to come and become president of ABC Sports Sales to represent a great guy named John Lazarus. And I was on the contract with Paramount and they would not let me out of my contract. They kept me at, uh, at, uh, at Paramount. And there were, there were letters going between Marty Davis, the chairman of Paramount, and Rune Arledge about me, and I knew neither one of them. But Paramount wouldn't let me go because there was a guy named Art Barron, another mentor of mine, wanted me to go down to Madison Square Garden. A friend of mine had run it for years, a guy named Joe Cohen, who was quite brilliant. And he wanted me to replace Joe and try and take his, his quote to me, and I won't say specifically, but his quote to me is, I want you to go down there. I got something there. I just don't know what the heck it is, was his quote to me. Um, and I said, well, you know, maybe you should go out, hire a consultant to take a look at it. And then Art looked at me and said, what the hell do you think I'm paying you for? So, you know, you're going to go down there. And I took a look at it. And it was the, you know, it was the early days is 85. This is the early days kind of cable and, and, and sports on cable. And there was nothing on basic in baseball, not one game. And on the basic uh, cable, uh, you had basketball and you had hockey and you had MSG Network in New York, which had about 1.8 million subs. It had Nixon Ranger games. The other games were on Channel 9. And uh, it was charging six cents per sub per game. Guys, and when you played that out, that was about 80 cents a sub per month. And when we started ESPN, we paid the cable operator five cents to put us on. So the whole economic model was completely different and I became fascinated by it. Um, but I also knew that uh, it couldn't sustain itself, that we had to get baseball if we could to be 52 weeks. If not, the challenge was too great. And the challenge was cable vision slash um, uh, sports, sports channel, the regional sports network. And uh, our number one uh, customer was cable vision and they owned our number one competitor. And they didn't even put us on basic. They put us on a third tier. They, you know, they only paid us 
on the homes they got it. And it was impossible for us to compete against Sports Channel and build a very successful, proper, uh, um, prosperous network. And uh, I said, that can't work. And uh, I said, we got to get baseball. I, I once remember I live in Huntington, Long Island. I went to the Cablevision store in Huntington. And I said, I just moved out from New York. I'd like to get MSG Network. And we don't have MSG Network. I said, well, you got posters of Patrick Ewing and John Van Beesbrook and Nixon. Why can't I get that? Oh, yeah, you can have that. That's Sports Channel 2. I said, oh, really? So, you know, Dolan, this is the old man now, not the young man, didn't give us our own channel. You had to buy through Sports Channel to get it. And the only way I thought um, to get it and the only survival for MSG Network was to take on our number one customer, basically the cable cabal, because everything was on pay. And in cable, if you were on pay, cable would charge you a dollar, they'd keep 50 cents. They didn't have to pay you a penny. They kept 50, you went 50. Basic, they had to pay me every month and they hated that. So when I went to Paramount with my great idea to try and get the Yankees from Sports Channel um, and uh, Sonny Werblin, the legendary Sonny Werblin, who again befriended me and took me to 21 every Wednesday for stories. I asked Sonny to introduce me to George Steinbrenner. And uh, Steinbrenner said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think cable's the future. You better talk real soon because Chuck wants to make a new deal. Because what happened was in 82, Chuck Dolan made a 30-year deal with the Mets firm. It's 82 for 30 years. But Steinbrenner and his people only made a 15-year deal and had a buyout after 1988, after six years. So it was a brilliant move on his part and his people's part. And we had heard about that and I made my move and I got Paramount involved. And, you know, it was, you know, an interesting period of time with George Steinbrenner and we thought we had a deal with him for $486 million. And he was supposed to come to the uh, signing at Marty Davis's um, conference room and uh, George never showed up. His lawyer showed up and said, George can't make this deal. This is 86. He can't make it until November of 88. He can talk to you all he wants. And we said, well, we've talked to him a hundred times. He said, you make this deal. He said, yeah, George says a lot of things he can't do. So for two years, we kept it under wraps. And I'm writing a book now on my career with Wally Matthews. And if, if we get it published, self-published in about a year, a lot of that will come out. But it was an unbelievable time. And we took on the entire cable universe, the cable cabal, and we took the Yankees away from cable vision sports channel put it on basic first time baseball was ever on basic and and we uh we uh you know we threw everything into a a state of disarray and and really created the prototype for the future of regional sports networks it was quite it was quite a deal there was a lot of pressure Uh, it was 500 million dollars paramount you know didn't spend any money for the garden um but it was 50 million a year kind of and that was one movie for paramount so i was able to convince the board and I don't know where this business is going, but without programming, we're not going with it. So we got one shot and this is it. And we did it. You know, we did it and wound up, it wound up working out pretty well. You know, I'm going to jump back a little bit. Mark has his list of questions and I have mine. We tried to sort of weave them in. You put, get put in charge of Madison Square Garden. And I'm wondering what's going through your mind. As a kid, you grew up. Yeah. You snuck into the garden uh, to watch games at the old garden between 49th and 50th. So what do you remember this experience as a kid and how did it really shape your decision to do something in sports as a career? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I did grow up in New York. 
I used to go to Madison Square Garden, my father all the time. I remember those lights that you would twirl at the circus, you know, or, you know, you know, with you know, all that stuff. And um, it, you know, Madison Square Garden, I once said, and it's been quoted many times, that every, every New Yorker owns a brick in that building. It's, it's just part of you growing up in this city. And I used to go there with my father. And, and obviously, we couldn't get a lot of tickets. Um, and when I did go with my fraternity brothers, you know, we were up so high on 48th Street, you couldn't even see the goal. You had to wait for the red light. So it just was always ingrained in, um, you know, in my DNA that the garden was just part of what we all were growing up in New York. And, you know, I, you know, I fell in love with Marv Albert and we used to listen to Marv and all the bars that we used to go to and Marv became a great friend. So it was an unbelievable not culmination, but an incredible step in my career that I was going to go to Madison Square Garden, number one, to try and build this network, a place that, you know, I used to go to all the time, and then Madison Square Garden. And I remember guys in my living room with my brother years ago watching a movie called Paternity with Burt Reynolds when he was a bachelor, wanted to have a baby, didn't want to get married. And his job was president of Madison Square Garden. And I remember sitting up with my brother and saying, you know, I'd like to do that someday. That would really be a fun job. And one point in my garden, in my era in my garden, I wrote Burt Reynolds a letter, invited him to come and be president of the garden for one for one day. So it was um, you know, that you know, the old phrase dream, dream come true kind of stuff, but in a lot of ways it really was. I mean, I just couldn't imagine that that was who I was, and um I was gonna have X amount of years and only X amount of years because I didn't own it. And uh, it was a complete joy for me and my family. And, and we had relatively good success, too. It was a great period, too. You know, the early 90s with the Knicks and the Rangers and some great people there, both, you know, behind the scenes and on the ice and on the court. Um, we, were all, we were all very lucky that we participated in that particular time. One of the things I remember from your early days there was boxing had a big presence on the network. And, and maybe I have this wrong. I remember seeing a very young Mike Tyson. I think he might've been nine and oh at that point. Um, and I think he had a fight against a guy named Bob Coley. And I remember it was like one of my first recollections of seeing Mike Tyson. How important was boxing to the network at, at that time for programming wise? Well, you know, it's again, you know, reliving so much stuff. Um, boxing uh, was very much in my blood. I love this sport. But not only that, when I was vice president of VSPN programming, I did a tremendous amount of boxing. And when I got there, we just had Thursday night fights with Bob Arum. Bob had an exclusivity on it. I broke the exclusivity on it. I brought King in to do fights. I brought Jimmy Jacobs and Bill Caton. Uh, and uh, they had a great fighter in a lightweight named Edwin Rosario, who was a terrific fighter. And Jimmy and I and Kate, and Kate was a little, little harder to get along with, but Jimmy and I became great friends, and I, I, I loved him dearly and um, did a lot of stuff with him. So when I was at Paramount, I started reading about Mike Tyson. I'd met Customato. I read about this kid upstate New York, uh, Jose Torres, all that kind of stuff. And I was kind of fascinated by it. So when I got to Madison Square Garden in November of 85, um, who was the guy? Um, Harold Weston and John Condon were in charge of boxing. 
And I went down to John Condon and Harold Weston and I said, um, I've been reading about this kid and I think it would be great if we brought him to Madison Square Garden. Maybe he fell for him at that particular point. Nah, 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 he's, he's a four-round fighter. We don't do anything. I said, well, let me see if I could do anything. Would you, would you give me a chance? Yeah, okay. So I go to have lunch with Jimmy and Kate. And Jimmy was this marvelous individual, uh, maybe our, our country's greatest handball player. And Jimmy said to me, he said, Robert, um, we would love nothing better for Michael to come to New York and fight in Madison Square Garden. Um, but uh, we believe he's an eight-round fighter not a four round fighter. And we would not come for anything less than what Mark Breland had about a month ago at the Phil Forum and that was $5,000. So I said, well, what if it was if I can get you to $5,000? He says, if you can get me to $5,000 and I like John Condon, but what John knows about boxing, you could put on the left side of the ledger. What we know about boxing, you put on the right side of the ledger. But I will tell you, if you can get us 5,000 for an eight round fight, We'll do it. I go running as fast as I could back to Madison's garden down to Condon. And I said, look, I can get him for $5,000 um, and uh, for an eight round fight. Now I'll only give him 2,500 for four rounds. I said, I'll tell you what, the network will chip in for the other $2,500 and make it an eight round fight. So Condon says, fine. Okay. I'll do it. I don't want to do it. We have that fight. It's promoted. We have 4,900 people at, to fell for unbelievable mike fought a tomato can it was you know less than a minute but abc was there nbc cbs the trucks everything unlike anything they had seen at the fell form in years and it was a tremendous success and i walk in monday morning and uh, the guys running the guard at that point say you're now in charge of boxing <laughs> so i was now the head of boxing as along with msg network and then i tried to figure bring somebody in because if you think of the history of 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 Madison Square Garden and boxing. And it reminds me of a story. I was in a cab uh, in London when I was black cabs and, and a great English driver. I was sitting in the back seat and he said to me, so well, what will you do? What do you do? And I said, well, look, I don't know if you ever heard of this place, but I'm the president of Madison Square Garden. He goes, oh yes, isn't that where they bop themselves on the nose? You know, so the garden was known around the world for boxing, not Knicks and Rangers boxing. And I wanted to see if we could bring it back to some kind of luster. It was very hard. The business changed. We had no drop by the Nate Cardmani games outside the building. And Bobby, Aaron, Bobby Goodman came to join me, Don King's guy. And we had some, we had some success and we started promoting guys, which the garden had never done. Camacho was there. Maybe they let him go. They didn't promote him. They didn't do anything. And we became a promoter. Um, and we had, you know, as I said, some limited success, but we can never, it was very difficult to compete against uh, Las Vegas. But we brought some big fights in and I brought Mike in for a couple of fights at the Garden. And uh, he told me he was, he says, yeah, I want to, I want to fight two fighters one night at the Garden, you know. So <laughs> it was, it was a great period, didn't last, but I cared greatly about boxing and I cared greatly what boxing meant to the garden in New York. Uh, and I think they're bringing more fights back. But the business of boxing has changed much different than I was there. You know, that's 35 years ago. So so you mentioned, you know, when AJ asked you about your early years at the garden, you, you mentioned Marv Albert. And one of the things you were very instrumental in was 
switching Marv from the radio side to yeah. TV, and then also switching out Butch Beard with John Andres. Yeah. Take us through your thought process and, you know, why you thought that, you know, needed to be done and the success of that pairing. Yeah. Um, we had Jimmy Carvelis and Butch Beard. And I have no, I knew Jimmy and I liked Jimmy. Didn't know Butch. Um, they were okay. You know, they, they were, you know, fine at what they did. Um, but I was really interested in building MSG Network into a complete centerpiece of regional sports and really reflective of what the garden was all about. And I wanted a talent. And uh, those guys were just a little bit below a talent. Um, and it's hard to tell somebody that. It's hard to hear it. But when the time came to make a decision, I felt that's what I had to do. And I wanted to talk to Marv first. Um, to see if he was interested, and he was very interested, and so was John Andres. And John Andres was a t t terrific color guy uh, for the Knicks, and they did terrific radio broadcasts, which were better than um, the network broadcasts. And driving home one night, I said, I'm going to switch. And I did. Butch didn't take it very well. I put Jimmy on, um, I put Jimmy on radio, um, and, uh, Marv and John were terrific for many, many years. And Carvelis was very good. I, the other thing I, I, I did was that, you know, Walt Frazier would not come back to the garden for many, many years. He didn't felt like he was wanted or it was a, a place for him to be again. And I felt that Marv and Earl and all those guys were, you know, they were our natural resource. I mean, they, they, they were our heritage. And, uh, I, um, had a lunch with uh, Walt and said I wanted to put him on radio. Um, and um, we put him together with Carvelis and, you know, he's gone on and had this career and, and uh, Earl Monroe, who I adored, we put him on a backup, you know, so we were really building what we thought was awfully good talent to represent the product that we had in the building. And hopefully the building uh, would get better, but we made the graphics better. Stars would come in, concert guys would come in, and I would say, let's put a microphone in front of them and just say, we came up with the phrase, we're MSG Network, we bring the garden home. That was our first phrase. We're going to bring the garden home to you. And we had every star that came in a building did a little, you know, did a little teaser for us. Hi, I'm, you know, uh, you know I'm Paul McCartney. You're watching MSG Network. And people started to recognize that early on. It was, it was fascinating. And it was all started the building process of what we wanted to do, because I eventually knew I wanted to build a network sports operation and I wanted to get the New York Yankees. I originally wanted the Mets because <laughs> I'm a Mets fan. I, you know, I grew up hating the Yankees. And um, but they gave, you know, they gave their rights away for 30 years. And we had one shot with uh, George. And I remember when I had a, a you know, we were at the range of playoff game and my wife and family there, my daughter was eight years old and I'm talking to Steinbrenner. She pulls me away and she said, daddy, why are you talking to him? We hate the Yankees. And he said, sweetheart, get away. I mean, this is business. I, you know, just go talk to your mother right now. I got, I got to see if I can make a deal here. You know? So, so yeah, it was all about, it was all about product. You know? So you talk about James Dolan, you talk about Steinbrenner and work with them and had difficulties with them. You know, George Steinbrenner once asked you to fire Tony Kubek. Right. And, and, you know, Jim Dolan didn't want you to cut into have the president uh, declaring war uh, because uh, he wanted to come to a Nick game. So who was the tougher one to work with? 
you know, and, and why? Yeah, uh, let, let me set the record straight. I didn't work one day for Jimmy Dolan, not one day. Yeah. Um, when Chuck Dolan bought the Garden with IT&T, um, Viacom released me because I wasn't going to work for Chuck and Chuck didn't want me. And that's, that's the way it was. That was no problem. Um, so, um, I had a lot of respect for Chuck Dolan, uh, although he was a very difficult guy, but came across like a eighth grade science teacher. I mean, as nice as he could be, but when it came to business, he'd rip your heart out, but he was brilliant. He was one of the builders of the cable industry. I mean, a real visionary. Uh, but a tough guy. And, and we really upset his business plan by taking the Yankees away. And he never forgot it. Um, he, the guy I worked for was Marty Davis, who was very difficult paramount, very difficult. And George Steinbrenner was a unique bunch of guys. Um, and that there are a lot of different parts of George. And George and I had a great fondness for each other, great respect for each other. One of the reasons is I convinced Paramount to give him about $500 million. So he liked me because of that. Um, but George was also the kind of guy that you had to go back in his face. Because if you did not, he had control over you. And when he had control over you, you really couldn't deal with him the way you wanted to be able to deal with him. So um, there are a couple of issues that when we negotiated the big deal, with, uh, with the Yankees, we got in there that George would not have say over who I could hire as announcers um, because I thought Tony might be one of them. And, uh, you know, we just gave you 500 bucks, a million bucks. You're not going to tell me who I can hire. And, but I will give you respect. I will let you know who I'm hiring. So um, we wound up hiring Tony, who I knew very well from NBC Sports, and uh, my first question to Tony when we were talking was, Tony, you got to be honest with me. Do you hate Steinbrenner? No, I don't hate George. George is fine. He's an ownerist. And I said, can you deal with it? Yeah, I can deal with it. Yeah, I can deal with it. <clears throat> anyway, we hired him. And uh, I remember calling George up in the car phone and saying, George, I just want you to know that we've hired Tony Kubek. And there was history there. George says, that's good. I like Tony. I don't think Tony likes me, but I like Tony. He's a good man. That's a good hire. So, but it came back and forth there. Uh, you know, the, the great story about dueling tapes and screaming matches and security and coming into my room, hoping, thinking that George and I are having this big battle. And I walked out of my office arm in arm laughing like crazy. You know, so he was, uh, <clears throat> I enjoyed him. Uh, I think he enjoyed me. And um, he was very lucky that we were there at that particular time because it completely changed the, the valuation of the New York Yankees <clears throat> and allowed them to do uh, things that they were going to be able to do for a long period of time, you know. And uh, I was accused of the guy that ruined baseball because I gave the Yankees so much money. And, you know, I now see Tom Brady just got $375 million <laughs> for Fox. So, you know, we were, just, contract. We, were just, we were in the early stages of it, that's all. So we don't have much time left, and obviously the, one of the biggest legacies you left behind at Madison Square Garden is breaking the Rangers' curse from 1940. Uh, you know, so many things you did led up to that magical night. Uh, J.D. had a hand in actually getting Mike Keenan hired, um, and one of the great stories is, you know, after it all got done, you wanted to open up champagne, and, and Mike Keenan said, no, let's just do beer, we'll do champagne when we win the cup. 
Um, but I, I think probably the biggest impact you had was at the trade deadline. I, I know that, you know, Neil and, and Mike were not really seeing eye to eye. And yeah. you got a call from Rob Campbell um, around trade deadline. Can, can you share that story with our audience? You've done your homework, guys. I, I got to tell you that. It's almost like you read my book already. I haven't finished it. <laughs> um, yeah, um, Keenan, um, I became aware in February that Keenan and Smith were not talking. There was no communication whatsoever. I was getting this through a th- third party. I was getting very concerned, obviously. <clears throat> I knew that we had a good team. I'm not so sure we had a great team. Um, I knew that there were issues between the general manager and a manager, and they wouldn't talk, and trade deadline was coming up. And uh, <clears throat> JD and I would talk a lot. JT, I, JD and I were very close. I would bounce a lot of things off of him. Uh, he's the one that really was instrumental in, in, in us getting Keenan through through me and then, and then through Smith. Um, and uh, a day before the trading deadline, I get a call from Rob Campbell, Keenan's agent, who said to me that my client just wants you to know that this team is not good enough to win the Stanley Cup and he does not want to be held accountable. He has not talked to the general manager in over 60 days. And I said, you know what? I'm aware of that. Um, And this is what we're going to do. Tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, I had a conference room off my uh, office. I said, I want your client (laughs) to be in my office. And Neil Smith will be in there with us. And we're going to sit down and we're going to talk this thing through. And he said, my client will be there. And prior to that, there were a lot of articles being written that Keenan wanted Smith's job, this, that, and the other thing. And so that night, I summoned uh, Smith to Suite 200 at the Garden at the Nick game. And I said, I talked to Rob Campbell. I got a call from Keenan's agent. Um, uh, and uh, you got to be in my office tomorrow at 10 o'clock. We're having a meeting with Keenan. I don't want to go. What do you mean you don't want to go? He's a junkyard dog. I can't deal with him. I said, well, you're going to deal with him. You wanted him and you're going to be held responsible. Why do I have to be held responsible? Because it was your hire. I'm responsible for you, even though I didn't hire you. You work for me. You're responsible for Keenan. You either be there at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning or you're fired. You make that decision. 10 o'clock in the morning, he showed up. And I put him on different sides of my conference table and I got in the middle. And I said, guys, We got a real problem Um, and the garden is being sold. And there's only one guy in this room that's really gonna get screwed here and that's me. But before that happens, we're gonna sit here and we're gonna figure out what we have to do to make this a better team. And I don't care how long it lasts. And I said, the first thing, Mike, is there's been rumors going around in the paper that you want Neil Smith's job. Mike, that's not gonna happen. You're the coach. You're the general manager. So put that idea in mind if you think that's the case. No, I don't want that. I don't want that. Neil says, I know he doesn't want it. I said, Neil, baloney, of course you think he wants it. And I don't blame you. It's being written. I understand it. But it's not going to happen. So we're going to sit here and figure out what we want to do. So Mike says, look, I really appreciate the opportunity. And he said to me, he said, you know, I'm like a baker. And when I'm making a cake, I need, I know that there needs to be a little more sugar in the icing. I said, well, if you're not communicating with the general manager, how does he know your icing doesn't need sugar unless you tell him? 
So we're going to sit here and you're going to tell them it needs sugar and you're going to guys are going to go back and forth. And then Neil jumped in and all of a sudden they started talking and talking and talking and talking to the point that I got up and I left. And I went down the office to my head of um, communications, Monty Bagley, a great lady. I sat across from her, put my shoes up on her desk and I said, Monty, if we ever win a cup, it's going to be because of this meeting. Back to my office, three hours later, Neil pops his head in and says, that was terrific. I really appreciate that. Mike and I, I think, are on the same page. I feel good about what I have to do. And he went off and he made some great moves because the reality is Neil was an excellent general manager and Keenan was a coach. And even though they hated each other and there was a difficulty working, they made each sort of, sort of better until you couldn't keep that any longer. And I couldn't keep that glue there because I was going to be gone. And I told, uh, and there's a whole story on how, you know, how Mike left and it's an ugly story, ugly, ugly. Yeah, but I told Mike I couldn't protect him if I was going to go. But they went off and they did what they had to do together off of that meeting. And through Neil's trades, um, that's, why, that's why they won a cup. So obviously those trade deadline moves paid off. Stefan Mateau was one of those trade dan- deadline acquisitions, maybe one of the greatest moments in Madison Square Garden history. And uh, full disclosure, um, I was a season ticket holder back then. So if you want to send me a bill, for the dent in the uh, row three and three fourteen, seven point seven seconds left. I don't think I've ever punched a chair as hard as I did when uh, Zelopukin scored that tying goal, but led to one of the greatest moments and obviously uh, on the road to the Stanley Cup. So I just want to thank you for that, and most importantly, and thank you for your time tonight. Um, there was so much we didn't get to, and we're looking forward to your book. When the book comes out, we'd love to have you back because AJ and I had probably another 50 or 60 questions that we never got to. Easily, easily. Well, it was my it was my pleasure, and 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 um, the most important thing though it was we had a great bunch of people at the Garden, and you know success of the Knicks and the network. It was really a collective, and uh, I was uh, fortunate to have some very good people around me, and they worked very hard. And uh, thank God we won that cup because if not, it would be eighty two years. You know, um, so um, it was it was a marvelous time, and uh, we were all blessed for having been there and sharing at this time. And it was too, it was too bad that the Knicks didn't win because we could have had two rings. So, but it was my pleasure. And, and lastly, lastly, before we let you go, besides being a very good hitting, excellent fielding first baseman, what are you doing these days? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, um, I got a little consulting company, but I'm working very closely with a, a very exciting company called Atlantic Pictures. Atlantic's here in New York. They're a creative um content studio they do film and television production we're building a sports documentary part of uh, what they do um they do a lot of film shooting with buildings and restaurants in new york and it's really a, it's really a lot of fun for me and exciting the guys that run it are terrific and they love uh, my background and what i've done and uh it's been uh, it's been a joy at this particular period of you know my life Awesome. Bob, thanks once again. Bob Gukowski, former president of Madison Square Garden.